with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning and welcome to the Monday edition of After 9. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Stuart Parker, and... uh, uh, I won't be saying that next week. I'll be saying welcome to the Tuesday edition of After 9. I'm uh, moving to uh, Tuesdays as we um, change our lineup uh, in the morning up a little bit. And uh, I encourage you to continue tuning in on uh, Mondays to listen to Alan and uh, his version of the show. Um as a soul, as a whole sort of five-day uh, program, uh, we try to represent uh, the diversity of opinion in Prince George. So today I have two guests, and we're going to have some somewhat longer interviews. I've got Sebastian uh, Nicholson from uh, Positive Living North. Um, he's going to be talking about um, the general education mandate he has as their education coordinator, and uh, then we'll dive into to some of the uh, issues around uh, sexual and gender identity that seem to be uh, making the news more often these days. Uh, At the half hour mark, uh, we'll uh, bring on Patty Backus on the line from Vancouver. She's the um, uh, Georgia Straits uh, education columnist, longest serving chair of the Vancouver School Board. And we're going to start dissecting some of the developments that have happened since our last show on education austerity last month. Changes to the uh, funding formula uh, were announced by the provincial government. They're presenting them as substantive changes, and uh, Patty will take us through uh, what these changes mean and how substantial they are. So uh, that's our hour. Uh, So let me begin by welcoming uh, Sebastian to the program. Thanks for coming in first thing on a Monday. Excellent. Thank you for having me, Stuart. So, um, now you serve as, uh, I, I think there was an interim or acting somewhere in the title, but, uh, I, I'm hoping, I'm hoping you, you, you stick around. Uh, you do education coordination for positive living North, which involves a whole range of, uh, public education functions. Take us into your job and, um, who you spend time educating and what you uh, spend your time telling them about. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm the uh, currently the interim education manager uh, at my workplace, and we travel all across the northern interior up to all of northern BC, um, talking about HIV, harm reduction, um, diseases, uh, sexual orientation. Uh, we go to high schools, elementary schools, we go to treatment centers, we go to rehabilitation centers, uh, health units, um, all ages, all age groups. Um, but our main uh, mandate is that we are an Aboriginal HIV organization. And our main concern is keeping people safe who are at risk for diseases like HIV. Um, and if you think about it, realistically, everyone... Uh, who is a human is at risk. Um, so we go around spreading good information in uh, in a safe way, um, not using any scare t- or tactics, but uh, you know, spreading it in a positive way. But uh, this, of course, ends up uh, with this broader mandate where you are talking about um, 
just uh, you're taking then an education function around human sexuality simply because uh, HIV AIDS touches that area. So um, uh, now we've um, we've seen a lot of uh, changes in how um, how government talks about this stuff, how these things are resourced. Um, I, uh, I ran in the municipal elections in 2018 down in Surrey, and a huge issue in the school board elections was this provincial program called SOGI. Um, so uh, what's your relationship to this new policy the provincial government's come out with? What do you think of it? Uh, yeah, for, so SOGI, we have uh, presentations uh, titled SOGI. We come into schools and... Uh, teach about uh, different sexual orientations and gender identity and enforce uh, why it's important for people not only who identify out of uh, male or female or are gender binary, uh, so to speak, uh, but how it affects everyone. So um, now we, uh, we had a very interesting stealth campaign against Soji where I was living two years ago where uh, a lot of religious leaders um, developed their own voter education package where they would meet with candidates, the candidates would reveal themselves to be opponents of SOGI, and then rather than that going to the mainstream media, it would uh, go to religion-led publications so that these candidates couldn't then be attacked in the mainstream media for this sort of thing. Do you get that kind of pushback uh, here when you uh, go around and talk about the basics of the... Um, identities and sexualities that are out there? Uh, you know, that's a really interesting question. Lots of, uh, we mostly teach SOGI in high schools um, when it's becoming more relevant to our uh, growing young adults. And it's widely accepted, I would say, in our community in Prince George. Um, some more isolated communities that I've traveled to in northern BC have uh, some more difficulty with uh, these terms. Um, yeah. So, I mean, now this, I, I mean, I'm a historian, so I have yet to find a society that lasted for more than about 80 years that survived mm -hmm. with a gender binary. Um, right. There are only the two genders and contrary to, I think some propaganda out there, I don't think anybody's gender fits them like a well-tailored suit. Um, your gender is like a thing you have to learn how to perform. It's uh, in a way a little bit more like a hair shirt than a well-tailored suit, right? It's itchy. It's uncomfortable. There's a set of expectations that go with it. Um, so uh, wh where do you think this myth comes from for people that um, there are like two genders and we all fit into them easily and uh, they're all instinctive? What do you think feeds into that mythology? That is such a good question. So that uh, really brings out sort of uh, some terms that we're uh, classifying our gender identities with. Uh, so the term gender refers to a really, it's a social construct, this idea of gender. You know, boys wear blue, girls wear pink. Um, and the whole concept that uh, someone's gender, you know, boys also are expected to have male genitalia and girls are expected to have female genitalia. But uh, the distinction we are seeing now is that 
uh, genitalia, you know, the organs that someone is born with, uh, that determinant uh, is called our, our sex, right? Right. Um, our, our sex refers to our organs, and that is what we are born with, and it's all how our chromosomes express themselves. Our gender is what our society um, sort of fits those two sexes into. Yes, so that uh, gender arises out of a collision between culture and bodily difference. And Mm -hmm. those two things have to come together to make gender. Nobody has a gender outside of society. You might have a biological sex outside of society, but society is necessary to make gender. And uh, so... This idea that sex and gender are exactly the same, that they don't have a problematic interaction, um, this is a pretty new idea in our civilization. It's maybe about 140 years old, uh, would be how I'd, I'd clock it. And it was often an idea that was peddled by very new religious movements, mm-hmm. uh, fundamentalist movements, if you will. Um, but we're starting to see... Um, Uh, But we're starting to see other movements in our society take on those beliefs. Um, We see a phenomenon called gender-critical feminism, which argues that biological sex is a much more important determinant than we'd previously thought. Um, We see all kinds of alt-right conservatism that isn't religious at all, that also goes goes along with this. Now, but it sounds like in our communities here in northern BC, those movements are not that successful at uh, getting people on side. Hmm. Would you you say that, um, what do you think some of the things are that push in the other direction, that produce a greater sort of tolerance or acceptance? Uh, greater tolerance or acceptance for diverse gender. Yeah, for, yes, for, for seeing gender as complex and diverse. Yeah, I think... You know, everyone on the planet right now, we're all on a quest to find ourselves. You know, identity is a big part of everyone's life, and it's what gives everyone meaning, right? So it's one thing for us to grow up and have our cultural identities, wherever our historic background is, or our social identities, you know, who we know, the people we interact with, but our our gender identity the way we perceive ourselves in our society is um, a, a really cathartic experience to have, right? Yeah. So actually, the way you phrased that, you 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 phrased it in a really precise. You sort of set up my next question mm-hmm. in the precision of your phrasing. So. Um, until I was about 11 years old, I was understood to be black. Color line moved. I mean, my mother my mother kept being black. I didn't uh, uh, because the color line moved. And the color line is something that's under society's control. Um, and, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to find a, um, uh, you know, if, if you uh, look at um, a uh, uh, Barack Obama today is black. He can't decide tomorrow that he's white. He can't go. I identify as white now, and everybody goes, "Oh, there's a white guy." We're not gonna, uh, we're not going to uh, project anti-black racism onto you. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And most of our identity, right, is like our is is made in society. It's made in social space. But you use this phrase that that gender identity is how we see ourselves rather than how society sees us. Um, why is there that that difference? Uh, so that difference is there because no one can change how we think of ourselves. Well, you know, they can with bullying and uh, stigma and uh, what have you. But the way we view ourselves should be in our control, and that's up to us. There's another term uh, referring to how we express ourselves and uh, how we dress and how we carry ourselves in society, and that's maybe more how people see us. So that is what we call our gender expression. So, you know, I can be perfectly comfortable thinking of myself as a man uh, and wear a skirt or a dress out in public, right? But that doesn't change how I view myself. Right. So, um, so this, this, and the, 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 you then come into the problem of, well, if your gender exists in your mind's eye, if it doesn't exist in society, um, how do you notify people? Um, or does notifying people matter? That's such a good question. I think it's important to be acknowledged the way that makes us feel comfortable, right? And this is part of the big movement our society is having um, with the simple question, what are your pronouns? You know, what do you like to go by? Do you prefer him? Do you prefer her? Do you prefer they? Um, I think it's very important uh, as a society to feel accepted in the way we identify. And it's a, it's a slow change. And, and this really what we're talking about is etiquette. It's about a theory of politeness. And this is one of the things I've found very interesting in, uh, in recent years. We used to, when I was a kid, and I guess I, I'm really getting on, politeness used to be viewed as a conservative value. Opening doors, taking off hats, bowing, um, all these little things that um, were a huge part of conservative masculinity. Being highly solicitous and really memorizing and paying attention to lots of rules and protocols. And so I find it very strange in this day and age where it's people who identify as conservatives who are the people most upset by these forms of politeness. Um, you don't just have the pronoun question, you also have a very basic question of name, right? That um, people choose to change their name if they choose a particular name. We call them by the name they ask to be called by. Uh, uh, now, this, uh, so these, I mean, like having rules about how to talk to people um, seems like a very conservative, traditional thing. Why do you think these rules are so hard on conservatives? I think it's because it challenges uh, a long history of conservative culture, right? The, the way they have viewed um, identity or, as you said, masculinity, right? There's very firm constructs laid out and uh, this whole movement for Soji sort of changes and challenges those movements in, uh, in a different way and it might not necessarily be um, 
I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but... Uh, oh, go, go where the interview goes. Yeah, so uh, this is just remind me of the whole uh, kerfuffle around gender-neutral washrooms. And, uh, you know, I hear especially many uh, conservative views speaking to, well, you know, why should these people get their own separate bathroom or their own special bathroom? And, uh, you know, the other side of the argument is, well, why do you get your own special washroom? So the, the fight for gender neutrality um, is not to say this is my own personal space. It's saying I would like a space where I feel comfortable to be myself. Okay, well, this actually opens up a very interesting question that I think is central to political debates, not just here, but in other countries. And so what I'd like to do is head into break a little bit early so that uh, we can sink our teeth into this neutral space or gendered space question in a serious way after the break. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Well, we're back uh, with uh, Sebastian Nicholson from Positive Living uh, North, um, and we're about to dive into a significant controversy in uh, my former city and in our province. Um, Their transgender rights activists have lobbied to uh, defund uh, the uh, Rape Relief Women's Shelter in Vancouver because um, they, uh, Rape Relief provides um, counseling uh, to sexual violence survivors of all gender identities and sexualities, but it provides shelter beds only to um, Um, we would say cisgender women, women who were born with uh, female genitalia, and they do not permit trans women to occupy those shelter beds. Um, And uh, activists like uh, Morgan O'Shea have uh, publicly called for the complete defunding of rape relief and the closure of those shelter beds. Rape relief's position is that Whatever gender a person might think they have in their mind's eye, their self-identity, how safe someone feels near them is based not on the thoughts in the person's head, but in the thoughts of the person who is trying to experience safety. And that irrespective of how trans women feel, that the sense of safety that's enjoyed by these sexual violence survivors is conditioned by how they appear, not how they feel. That's become a, a significant controversy, and it's just one of the many controversies about how we think about space, who is entitled to be in space. And I'm interested in your thoughts on um, uh, on that question. Should... Um, Rape Relief's position is that they would support the existence and funding of a shelter just for trans women, especially given that, according to some studies, they experience higher rates of sexual violence against them than uh, most women do. Uh, But um, there comes this question. When we claim space and we say it's only for this particular gender or sexual identity, how should we be managing these controversies? 
that's such a difficult question. I think uh, coming back to the search for a gender neutral space, um, you know, a gender neutral washroom, uh, using that as the example again, isn't to say this is only for people who are transgender. This is only for someone who doesn't identify as male or female. It is a space for uh, males. It's a space for females. It's a space for people who are gender fluid and everywhere in between. It's not uh, exclusive space. It's it's a on the search for inclusivity is where the space is produced. Well, and this is quite different. Um, the way that uh, so uh, people so some. Uh, people who don't fit into our gender binary easily have lobbied for neutral space that everyone is allowed in. Some have lobbied to enter into the space that is set aside for people who uh, uh, identify one particular way. In Thailand, we saw a very different route where um, beginning in the 20th century, the Thai, Thai people were quite ahead of us on this, uh, trans women began uh, lobbying to have washrooms for trans women. Uh, that um, and these first began to appear in colleges and universities and have spread to other parts of Thai society. Um, what what do we make of that? And how would we feel about people who were not trans women entering into those spaces? Mm-hmm. Well, that that's all part of the search for safety, right? To feel safe in your own skin, to feel safe in your own body, to have a space where you aren't being judged. And as you said, with the shelters, um, that, you know, cisgender women might not feel as comfortable around trans women because of the way their gender expression sort of reminds them of, uh, you know, different role in society. Or of, of men's violence. Let's yes. say that. Yeah. Right? That's what everybody's trying to get away from. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. Um, and, and that's the whole thing. It's a safe space. So trans women having their own washroom, uh, that's part of the search for safety. So that seems like a master principle then that you're talking about, that the different things that we're doing around sexuality and gender identity should be governed by this principle of safety. And this, um, and I think that, that, that's, uh, that that's a compelling uh, optic for, for doing this. Um, now, when we, um, now of course, there are two aspects to safety. There are feelings of safety and there are, um, and there are actual chances of being hurt. And often our perceptions of how safe we are and the actuality of how safe we are are different. How do we sort of mediate between what makes a person feel safe and what makes a person be safe? That's so hard. You know, I think especially when it comes to people, you know, you mentioned male violence. Um, Everyone's capable of violence. Um, Historically, we've seen, you know, very high amounts of women, uh, cisgender or trans women or um, many other orientations, right, suffer from uh, sort of a a male abusive role. that's uh, such a hard question. You know, I think just having a dialogue, uh, being open 
to sexuality and having honest conversations with people, especially while they're young and not understanding what um, sex might be or what, um, you know, these social interactions might entail. It's, uh, It's a conversation is all it is. So we can feel safe, but by talking about it, that is how we implement true safety. I think that that's. I think you've you've hit upon another theme that's been very important for me, and it's one of the reasons I'm I'm so glad to have you on the program today, mm-hmm. is that when you get into a politics that's governed by etiquette, uh, governed by rules around what to say, there's a fine line between identifying someone who's trying to insult you, and and recognizing that a person is asking a question in an inelegant way or an ignorant way. And uh, I, I've really struggled with being able to talk about these issues in the public square because out of a fear that I would breach the etiquette, that I would, uh, that I would say something the wrong way. And uh, it's very refreshing to have an educator on the program whose first impulse is to answer the question before even telling me whether the question itself uh, stepped on some basic rules of etiquette. So um, anyway, we've, uh, we're switching dramatically in subject now, but I want to thank you so much for coming on the program, and I hope that we can keep this conversation going in the months ahead. Yeah, thank you for having me. I think there's a lot more to talk about, and oh, yeah. I'm very excited uh, for the future. If anyone is interested in Positive Living North's uh, presentations, we are all free, and we always offer a safe space. So you can find our contact information online. Thanks so much, Sebastian. And after the break, Patty Backus. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Well, it's uh, Stuart Parker back with the last of my uh, After 9 Monday editions. We'll be handing uh, Mondays over to Alan. I'll move to Tuesdays, and uh, the beat will go on here at CFIS uh, starting next week. I'm, uh, I'm pleased to have on the line with me from Vancouver, uh, Patty Backus, uh, longest serving uh, chairperson of the largest school board in BC, the Vancouver School Board. She's moved on since then to become an education columnist with uh, the Georgia Strait, uh, BC's alternative paper of record. And um, I have her here to talk about some of the recent developments in uh, education policy. Thanks for coming on the show, Patty. Well, thanks for having me, Good morning. Good morning. Now, uh, I did my last education austerity show less than a month ago. I had uh, BCTF representatives on, representatives of our local district parent advisory committee. And, uh, but then, since then, the government has announced some changes um, that they suggest are going to be able to deal with the crisis in uh, classroom teaching that we're dealing with here. Um how substantive are the changes that Rob Fleming has rolled out in the past month when it comes to uh, funding for disabled students, uh, availability of teachers, things like that? Um, well, not very. I, very underwhelming, to be honest. Um, with the provincial budget that came out, I was just looking again at those numbers. and The increases to the K-12 
budgets um, hardly keep pace with inflation as slightly under 2% for next year. Um, you know, we have, and, and they're talking about an increase in, uh, projected increase in enrollment provincially, I think, of around 5,000 students. So, and, and they're bragging that they'll, they'll fund that, which one would expect they would fund additional students coming into the system on a system that's funded on a per-student basis. So what they've allotted in the budget, I don't actually see how this is going to work because there's not really enough to increase the per-student grant, even for inflation, which would, would put school boards right back in the old situation of the funding they get from year to year doesn't keep pace with inflation, and in order to balance their budgets, which the school that requires them to do, they have to find some way to cut something out to make the numbers match if their inflationary costs have gone up, and they do. Um, so I was, you know, it's, it's <laughs> the, the response is a bit tepid from the usual partner groups, things like the BCTF, uh, the BC School Trustees Association. It's not the kind of bad news they're used to from, from liberal budgets, where they'd often have some pretty nasty news where they really had to cut something. But it's pretty disappointing to me that there's no real movement to restoring many of the services and programs and staffing that was cut during the liberal uh, reign on the province. So um, now, what is what does this budget mean for the negotiators who are at the table? Right, the uh, we currently. Um, uh, they've got until about June to negotiate a new teacher contract, um, uh, and uh, the uh, public sector uh, employers uh, association uh, now pretty ha- pretty much has its table set for it. What do you think this is going to do to the chances of a contract being signed by the end of the school year? Well, the actual contract expired last June, so teachers have been working right. without a contract all of this year. So there's kind of no actual hard deadline in sight. The thing's just dragging on, and nobody wants to blink. So uh, I know the BCTF recently did approve a series of potential step job action, but there seems to be a reluctance, reluctance on both sides of the bargaining table to escalate this thing. Nobody's locking anybody out, and nobody's locking out. Uh, there may be some, some increased action, but I think teachers are weary after all those years of fighting at liberals. Nobody wants to go down that road. It, you know, the, the challenge with the bargaining and teachers is, is there's a couple of things. One is the provincial negotiating mandate that the government sets. And, you know, this is something they do. Uh, governments of all stripes tend to do with provincial bargaining. They set what they call the public sector mandate. And all of the public sector contracts that are being negotiated in that time period are supposed to fit within this mandate and if uh, and they generally settle so they've they've set a mandate of two percent a year over three years for three-year contracts most of the public sector unions have signed on to that the bctf has not uh, there is a little bit of wiggle room within that mandate to make some changes to things like salary grids and some of the language but it if it starts to cost too much it, it goes outside of this mandate and you know, one can fairly question whether setting these hard mandates really is free collective bargaining that the government says they support, because it really isn't. Uh, it's like we're setting out the parameters ahead, and as long as you negotiate, you know, you can have any color of car you want as long as it's black. You can have any contract you want to bargain as long as it's two to two. So that's been a real frustration, I think, for teachers who are, you know, well behind most of the country in terms of, of salary already and also living in some of the most expensive regions. 
Um, so there, there already is a lot of frustration in the BCTF membership over the reality that they're probably not going to get a catch-up in their salary. Uh, in the provincial budget, you won't see the money for the contract in the education budget. It will be in the contingency budget, which isn't very large. I think there's about half a billion dollars in the provincial contingency fund. But that, you know, that goes to a lot of things. We have a bad fire season, wildfires, all of those things gone contingency. So there, it is there. They put aside some money. But, you know, this, this I don't see how this... Uh, teachers' contracts going to get resolved soon. And, and, of course, the real crisis that's affecting students and families all over the province is the shortage of teachers. And when you don't have a contract and they're way behind their counterparts in the provinces and no sign of that really changing, that, that problem may only get worse. And we're already seeing, I think, areas like where you are in, uh, where they're now hiring unqualified teachers. People coming, you know, without <laughs> I heard real estate agents in their covering classes. Now, I would say BC, you know, has an international reputation of having one of the best public education systems. It's something uh, a lot of money comes into this province through international student programs. And I would say, you know, some of that brand is at risk right now if we start. Uh, resorting to hiring people who don't even have the professional training to become teachers in a school system that's known for the high quality of its of its teachers. So it's a big problem, and I don't see Rob Fleming has not struck me as a particularly um, capable minister or a minister who's really trying to tackle any of these things. And I, I think that's a real concern, and it's certainly disappointing to see from this government. Well, uh, as someone whose job uh, came out of Melanie Marks' ministry, I'm I'm looking covetously now at these unqualified teaching positions. I, I have no teacher training at all, but uh, I did teach at the college level, and I can see, I can see. Yes, there is um, there's some system wide uh, there's a system wide problem when. Uh, there are these huge bald patches on our map. So uh, we're going to uh, head to break for a few minutes. Uh, when we come back, um, some questions about the larger uh, issue of how we do teacher bargaining in B.C. It's after nine on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. So we're back with uh, Patty Backus, uh, Georgia Straits education columnist, former chair of the Vancouver School Board, talking about um, teacher bargaining and education funding more generally. Now, when I talk about this, I uh, it's interesting we keep saying Rob Fleming. Uh, obviously, the size of the money that's available here is uh, determined mainly by the Treasury Board and by the Minister of Finance. And uh, that's Carol James, who has had a long history in this business and was one of the creators of our current system of province-wide bargaining in the late 90s um, when she was chair of the BC School Trustees Association. Now, prior to... So 22 or 21 or 22 years ago, we switched to this system where the province does the bargaining. Uh, prior to that, uh, bargaining was much more decentralized. The province gave block funding to school boards. Uh, school boards kept the, uh, more of the property taxes that they raised. And contracts were negotiated uh, district by district in the province. Um how much of this problem is sort of a, 
a political partisan problem around government priorities and how much of it is the system that we uh, we just have this one province-wide contract? I think those are both really key factors. And I, I, I would have to say that I think the bargaining uh, process on the employer side of the table is pretty broken and a big part of the problem. I know people like to say, oh, the BCPF never gets along with any government. Um, I, having been on the inside and being on the employer side and being the rep for the Vancouver School Board to the BC Public School Employers Association, have seen sort of how the sausage gets made on the employer side, and it's not pretty, and it's not a very effective process. So in BC, uh, bargaining for public school boards is done by the BC Public School Employers Association, which I believe, as you're talking about, was created uh, by a previous NDP government. Uh, to bring sort of a provincial focus to the table as opposed to having 16 individual school districts uh, negotiating contracts and the concern of, you know, whipsawing and different things that go on. Um, so, you know, you have this uh, situation where we have the BC Public Schools Employers Association. It's governed by a board that is made up of elected trustees, school boards elect trustees to represent them on the BCPC board. Government also appoints, I think, four members um, as well, but government controls the money. And, and really, history has shown that whenever there has been a deal, or the few times it could have made, it's really when the politicians get involved. We saw Christy Clark step in in 2014, I believe it was, and uh, before that, it generally ends up... It, it's politically controlled. BCPC does a lot of the minutiae, the sort of the... the painstaking work of the small print and the contracts and some bumps to the table. Um, but, you know, whether school boards actually have much influence is really questionable. I used to go to those bargaining meetings where uh, it was made out to sound that we were all giving our input and giving sort of direction to the board. And, and I can tell you that did not happen. We were told what they were going to do. And I, I have to say, I was really troubled by the culture at the BC Public School Employees Association some of the presentations, you know, back in the year is one that was a net zero mandate. We had really nothing to offer in a bargaining round. Uh, they'd come marching in there with a list of concessions they were determined to go after. And I was like, this is crazy. Like, we'll never get a deal. We need to kind of find a way to make this net zero palatable, much less sort of trying to antagonize uh, the, the employee group with uh, a series of, of takeaways when we're actually offering nothing. So it was a really... To me, it was mind-boggling the culture that went on there. So I think there's some real problems. I think the frustration of sending in BCPC with inadequate ability to really bargain a deal is, is frustrating a lot of people and wasting a lot of time. And I would say we really need to relook at that. And even the role of school boards, I hate to say it because I love being a school trustee and I think it's really important to get people in those roles that care but their roles have been so diminished over time. They can't levy taxes. They don't really do the, the, the money bargaining anyway. They can do some smaller issues locally. Um, and they're kind of stuck in the middle of the crossfire and nothing's getting done. And government, you know, can just keep sort of passing the buck saying, well, it's over to BCPC, but they don't give BCPC the tools. They need to really get a deal hammered out. So, yeah, I would say there's some real concerns about what's happening on the employer side uh, in terms of being able to effectively bargain and get this thing done. 
Yes, yeah, so I, I imagine. I mean, what I recall from the older system, uh, which is weird, right? Because the old system was created by Bill Vanderzam, who hated teachers. He just hated them ineffectively and uh, designed a strangely useful system by accident. But uh, um, in northern BC, for instance, um, the ability to levy a little bit more in property taxes and offer a bit of a higher salary seems to be pretty crucial for retaining teachers when there's this kind of competition, that competition, just as competition between provinces is the only thing that's driving up teacher wages right now, competition between school boards used to create that in BC uh, writ small. Um, Do you think there would be any... um, Uh, Do you think we could go back? Do you think we could turn back the clock and have that kind of environment with um, block funding and competing contracts? I don't think anyone really sees that being feasible at this point, but I do think that, you know, we need to, uh, I don't think we can turn back the clock, but I think we need to, to look at how we're doing this and see if there's a better way. I think you need to have a more direct line to government involved in this. If government is really controlling the first thing, the government needs to be uh, more directly involved in the bargaining and taking some responsibility for it instead of trying to sort of put this group in the middle that really is just frustrating the process. Um, I don't think, you know, you know, from Vancouver, we used to look at what uh, Vancouver generated in terms of uh, the, the, the surtax on property, not the new levy, the one on top, but the general school tax portion on property tax in Vancouver. I think West Van and Vancouver are probably the only districts in BC that would submit more from that tax levy than they would get back in their operating budgets. Most districts, it would on average be about a third they would submit and then get the rest from the general revenue. Uh, so a dense property tax base in a city like Vancouver could actually really benefit if, if we were doing local taxation and local spending. More rural areas, obviously, it's tougher as it's a thinner tax base. And I'm not sure that anyone wants to kind of fight one district versus another. Like, to me, the pie is not big enough. I never felt that our argument was we want to take away from, uh, you know, a northern district or someone that has higher costs because of transportation or heating or whatever to, to get more for Vancouver kids. I think what we wanted was, like, the percentage of spending of the provincial budget that's going to education is steadily decreasing. Uh, you know, if you look at it by a number of measures of what we used to take out of the province of spending on education has become a much smaller piece of, uh, you know, which to me reflects is it a smaller priority, and I suspect it probably is. There's other things like health care goes up, aging population, things like that. But, you know, we have to decide as a province, you know, we have what is proven time and time again to be among one of the most uh, cost-effective and successful public education systems by almost any measure when you look at the standardized outcomes, um, and, and we're respected for that. I would argue that, you know, if you have something that you clearly do very, very well, why are you not investing in it and, and, and really making that a, a prideful thing? We know the future of the knowledge-based economy. We know you can't, you know, get a grade 11 education and go off and work in the resource sector and make a good living the way you could when I was a kid and got out of school. Uh, education is a critical component to a to a healthy economy and a healthy society overall. And why are we putting less and less of our our budget toward that? To me, is really the question. 
Um, why are we shortchanging kids today? Like, there's so much less available in our school system to kids starting out now than my own kids had when they started out uh, 20 years ago. Yeah, so uh, we'll come back to that larger question right after these messages. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Well, welcome to the last uh, segment of the last episode of After 9 Monday edition with Stuart Parker. Uh, It'll be Tuesday edition next week. And I want to thank Patty Backus for taking us through a lot of the um, an aerial view of our situation. I'm going to conclude by asking you a, a pretty practical question. It's a question I asked all three of my guests when I had my education austerity show last month. And that that is, if people are concerned parents or concerned members of civil society, they want to see change and movement and uh, in addressing, in uh, my district here, uh, a, ma- a terrible teacher shortage that's resulting in a loss of um, classroom teaching, lo- resulting in a loss of education assistance, and resulting in unqualified people being brought into the classroom. Who's the, who should people be calling? How should they be directing their concerns or complaints? Um, I think they should be contacting their MLAs and they should be sharing their concerns with uh, their parent advisory councils. They should be inviting their MLAs to their meetings. They should be writing letters to editors if there's still any newspapers that are around in prison. Um, and, and getting, you know, organizing to an extent, whether it's Facebook groups, whatever, getting groups together to talk about this and share information. There's a lot of good resources, but it, it can be sort of complicated and dense and, you know, people are busy. So to kind of share information about um, what is happening in public education, the fact that, you know, parents should know that their kids are funded almost $1,800 less per year than students in other provinces. Um, which is significant and, and affecting the services that are available to them. And I think we need to keep reminding people that it isn't just about parents with kids in school. Like, we are all affected by our public education system. Um, you know, an educated population is, is healthier, is more economically vibrant. Um, it's, you know, ignorance is expensive when people aren't getting the supports they need. If they're not getting to school, they can become very expensive to society to support those people and provide care for them if they're running into problems. So it, it, it is a really, you know, it's one of those challenges that is it's very hard to make education a ballot box issue, and politicians know that. They know people care generally about education, but will they will it affect how they vote? And it often doesn't, and that, that is the challenge, that we need to make people understand, though, that there's a lot to lose here, that we really do have a system that works you know, it's certainly not perfect, our education system, and there's always things to improve. But relative to almost every other jurisdiction that I've seen around the world, we get incredible uh, results for our money. Our students tend to do very, very well overall. Now, so many do fall through the cracks. But we can do better, and we need to not erode what's something that actually works. We actually do this really well in our province education but when we're starting to, you know, strip things away and now hiring um, teachers who aren't even qualified to be teachers, I mean, that that happened in the U.S. And, and I think what we see in the U.S. without, you know, I, I think we're seeing what happens when you allow your public education system to erode as you start getting people who, you know, starts affecting your democracy because education is the cornerstone of democracy. 
Um, so it's really critical that we insist on quality public education and that we're going to fund it. And it, see it really is the investment that it is as opposed to just another expense on the budget that can be trimmed back. All right. Well, on that uh, stirring note, I want to thank you very much for spending a whole half hour with us and uh, hope to have you back later in the year. Hopefully there'll be some nice epilogue to the story of the negotiations. Well, I hope so. And I look forward to that. And thanks very much for having me on your show. All right. Thanks, Patty. Uh, All right. Well, we're um, approaching the last uh, couple minutes of uh, of the Monday show. And just a word about um, the relationship between education and uh, our democracy. There um, is no question, uh, as we look back historically, that um, the uh, uh, that as soon as Uh, The oil industry became aware of its um, uh, of the uh, of the certainty of climate change way back in the 1920s. Uh, We've seen consistent efforts to um, defund education, to encourage religious fundamentalism, to do a variety of things that would make science less understandable to our population and make uh, um, and make our population less likely to believe science, even if they understood it. So it's important to recognize that um, cuts to education are not simply driven by penny pinchers, by agendas of austerity and the desire to make government save money. Uh, they've been driven by uh, lobbies in our society that are, that become less profitable and are harmed when we have a literate, numerate population that has a real scientific understanding. And uh, uh, I strongly concur with Patty that the United States really is a cautionary tale because one of the other things that happens when you cut funding from a public education system and people look uh can't afford to send their kids to a for-profit private school, the people who step into the breach are often religious fundamentalist organizations that are willing to subsidize an anti-science education. And there are reasons for that that go far beyond religiosity. Most religious organizations subsidize education that improves science uh, understanding. Organizations like the Roman Catholic Church or the Anglican Church, what we might call the mainline religions, are interested in seeing an educated populace. But there is a dark side to uh, the kinds of Christianity we see rising in the United States. And central to that is the idea of taking kids out of regular school and putting them in an anti-science environment. On that cheery note, uh, that's it for After Nine Monday edition with Stuart Parker. After Nine is a daily presentation of CFIS FM, produced by Stuart Parker, Alan Wishart, and Neil Godby of your Prince George Citizen. Executive producer is Reg Fair. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at CFISFM.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email CFISFM at yahoo.ca.